Um, so you've already heard a little bit uh, about some of the controversies surrounding uh, what to do with uh, pregnancy and HIV and uh, infant feeding, um, and no better person uh, to do that than Judy Levinson. Uh, Judy is a professor in OBGYN uh, at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. She reminds us that it is not Baylor University uh, in Waco, Texas, Waco, Texas. Um, she uh, was trained at, at, at BU, or at Tufts, I'm sorry, uh, UW, and then uh, University of Texas School of Public Health. I just uh, noted this morning uh, that the state of Texas has now taken over the uh, Houston Public School District um, because they're not doing a good enough job. Uh, so I'm sorry about Texas. Um. <laughs> I am too. All right. Where's my pointer? Um, where's my pointer? I mean, my clicker. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Okay, great. Yes, so we'll be talking about infant feeding and people with HIV. I have no disclosures, and I hope by, that by the end you'll be able to say what is known about the risk of HIV transmission via breast milk with and without antiretrovirals. Describe the motivations of those who want to breast or chest feed, and explain what's changed in the 2023 perinatal guidelines. So first of all, I may use breastfeeding, chest feeding interchangeably, and when I say breastfeeding, please also hear chest feeding as well as infant feeding. Research done in the past uh, on this topic has investigated cisgender women and results from studies are therefore reported on women. So first I wanna give you a little bit of history going back to the 1990s. Once upon a time, Prior to antiretroviral therapy, the risk of perinatal transmission was about 25%. And when I say perinatal, I mean we're referring to transmission during pregnancy, labor, and delivery. Uh, with AZT, when somebody got very brave in the 1990s, okay, um, and dared to give a pregnant woman antiretrovirals. And what they found was by giving AZT during pregnancy, during labor, and then treating the infant with prophylaxis, the transmission dropped to 8%. So that was a 60% drop, which was huge. Then with ART, less than 1% transmission. And now we have evidence from over 5,000 mother-baby pairs that if a mother has an undetectable viral load at conception throughout pregnancy and at delivery, out of the 5,000, there were no transmissions. So what's the risk of transmission via breast milk in 2023? Before ART, transmission was estimated to be about 16%, and that was just too high. With ART, the original studies were suggesting 1% to 5%, but many of them did not include direct correlation with viral load. So we can't 
we aren't quite sure what to do with that one to five percent. However, uh, a um, sub-study of the Promoting Maternal Infant Survival Everywhere or Promise study uh, randomized mother-baby pairs to either maternal ART or infant nevirapine while breastfeeding. And um, similar findings in the, in the two arms, which was 0.3% transmission at six months, 0.6% at 12 months, so three per thousand or six per thousand. Um, so quite a bit lower than what we were estimating before. And this shows you two, two of the cases women had undetectable viral loads at the time of the infant's diagnosis. Um, however, uh, neither of them had consistent viral suppression through the third trimester and throughout breastfeeding. And so these were not what we would consider ideal candidates. But at the moment of infant diagnosis, uh, they were looking pretty good. So um, just to understand where some of these transmissions were happening and um, put that into our context. Data are starting to accumulate from high resource settings. And uh, we now have um, reports, three from Canada, um, increasing numbers from the US, an Italian study, German, and Swiss. And, but still just um, double digit numbers at the most. And one of the questions is how different is it in high resource settings and or how much can we rely on the low resource settings for um, directing what we recommend? So why not just give replacement feeding to all infants globally? Well, we know that there are, um, there's a higher risk of death for infants from diarrheal disease and malnutrition uh, if an infant is given breast milk versus, uh, um, is, is given formula versus, versus if breastfed. And just an example was um, I was sitting in a cafe in Habaroni, Botswana, and on the table with the sugar and the creamer, there, I picked up a creamer and it said not for infant nutrition. And I realized that what's creamer? It's milk substitute. What's formula? Well, it's milk substitute. And clearly people had taken one look in the grocery store at the difference in prices and probably also in availability and um, had given some infants creamer and the outcomes were not good. So formula has been recommended where it's generally acceptable and feasible, affordable, sustainable and safe, which is not the case in most of the world. And that's what has led to recommending breastfeeding, uh, certainly in uh, resource limited settings. But now, um, even in the US, we are encountering some issues with contaminated water in Flint, Michigan, Jackson, Mississippi, Houston, Texas, and also with major formula shortages uh, in the last few years. And so that, that has really been an issue for um, many of our uh, mothers who had opted to formula feed. So in the US, who wants to breastfeed? And this is really a composite of many of my patients. 32-year-old woman originally from Nigeria, 
was diagnosed with HIV during her current pregnancy, and during prenatal care, she, she communicated to her obstetrician her desire to breastfeed. She feared that not breastfeeding would raise suspicion in her community about her HIV status. And um, stigma in, in so many of the African communities is very great. And in Houston, we have large Nigerian community, large Cameroonian community, large Ethiopian community. And anyone seen not breastfeeding feels like she is waving a red flag at her community saying, I have HIV. She'd also heard and read so much about breastfeeding and being better for her baby and also for her. So she was referred to the uh, local pediatric HIV specialist who reviewed the risks of HIV transmission via breastfeeding, and the patient expressed relief just to be able to talk about it. And knowing she had options provided a space for her to contemplate the best decision for her situation. So she opted to breastfeed for three months, both to prove to her community that she didn't have HIV and in response to the public messages that breast is best. She remained virally suppressed on ART while she breastfed, and her baby was given daily nevirapine prophylaxis while breastfeeding. And we'll get a little more into, into the prophylaxis issues. Her baby remained HIV negative. So this is just one common example but there are women of many other racial and ethnic groups who are expressing a desire to breastfeed. And we finally started listening to them. So what has been the guidance around feeding choice for infants of people living with HIV? If we go back to 1985 uh, and what CDC said, it was basically, and at that time, this was a, before we had the, the terminology for HIV, it was HTLV, uh, V3, LAV infected women should be advised against breastfeeding to avoid postnatal transmission to a child who may not yet be infected. And then in 2015, the perinatal guidelines for the first time took their heads out of the sand and um, addressed the issue that maybe there are some women who might express an interest in breastfeeding. And so what they said was, in discussing the avoidance of breastfeeding as the strong standard recommendation for HIV-infected women in the United States, the panel notes that women may face social, familial, and personal pressures to breastfeed despite this recommendation, and that it is important to begin addressing possible barriers to formula feeding during the antenatal period. End of discussion. Then 2018 was the first time that an entire section was added to the perinatal guidelines to address a little more thoroughly, but still somewhat vaguely, um, the breastfeeding issue. And there you can see it says breastfeeding is not recommended. And women who have uh, questions should receive counseling and when, when women with HIV choose to breastfeed despite intensive counseling, they should be supported. So still quite a bit of negative language. So what changed in 2023? And I show this slide, you don't need to be able to read the fine print, but just to see what's in yellow are all changes. And um, 
the major change is that we now are saying support parental choice through shared decision making rather than encouraging a specific infant feeding mode. And that is a major change in perspective. So what are the things that we took into consideration? Um, one are the health benefits from breastfeeding. So for the infant, we know that there's a lower risk of infants developing asthma, obesity, uh, type 1 diabetes, respiratory disease, necrotizing enterocolitis, otitis media, you can see the list. Um, for the mothers, there's a decreased risk of developing hypertension and also lower risk of breast and ovarian cancer and also a reduced risk of type 2 diabetes. There also were equity considerations. And we know that black women are disproportionately affected by HIV and that people of color experience many of the health conditions that breastfeeding might re reduce or eliminate. And then there were the cultural considerations. And as we said, the environmental, familial, personal, and um, also the fear that the not breastfeeding would out them to their community. So these are, this is the new wording for um, the overview of counseling and management for people with HIV who are not on ART and or do not have a suppressed viral load at delivery, replacement feeding with formula, or banked pasteurized donor milk is recommended to eliminate the risk of HIV transmission. So really wanting to emphasize, we are talking about a select group, though hopefully the majority of our, of our uh, pregnant women, um, who may be candidates, and those are women who are virally suppressed. Individuals with HIV on ART with a consistently suppressed viral load during pregnancy at a minimum during the third trimester and at the time of delivery should be counseled on the options of formula feeding, bank donor milk, or breastfeeding. And the infant feeding options that eliminate the risk of HIV transmission are formula and pasteurized donor human milk. Uh, fully suppressive ART during pregnancy and breastfeeding decreases breastfeeding transmission to less than 1%, but not zero, as, we, um, as you were also being asked earlier in, this, in this, these presentations. Um, another issue that has really confused us along the way is, is intermittent use of formula. And just to give you some background, um, in the late 1990s, there were studies of women who were not on ART, who breastfed and who formula fed and who went back and forth. And there was a higher rate of transmission in the ones that went back and forth than those who exclusively breastfed. And so people, we have generally said exclusive breastfeeding, I mean, that is the recommendation with you if you have HIV or not, but there's been this little extra edge for many, many clinicians of, mm, well, if they use formula at all, are we increasing the risk of transmission? 
And we have no evidence of that in the era of ART. But just, I think that is what has created some of the confusion. And so the new wording is, if breastfeeding is chosen, exclusive breastfeeding up to six months of age is recommended over mixed feeding, um, which, and when we say mixed, meaning breast milk and formula, acknowledging that there may be intermittent need to give formula, for example, infant weight loss, milk supply not yet established, mother not, yet, um, not having enough stored milk, and solid should be introduced as recommended at six months, but not before. And I think the um, not having enough milk supply early on has been one of the big problems, and clinicians have sometimes, if the baby was accidentally by the given formula by the nursery, have then sometimes prevented women from, from returning to breastfeeding. And we're now leaning a little more towards saying there may be times, and there probably have been a lot of women who said they were exclusively breastfeeding when really occasionally they had to get formula. And then the, the circumstances where you might consider stopping or modifying breastfeeding. And again, some of this, you're going to ask me for more specifics, and we don't have the data. In the case of a detectable viral load, breastfeeding should be temporarily stopped, and options include giving previously stored breast milk, pump, pumping uh, and flash heating, and which is briefly heating the, the milk in a water bath, providing replacement feeding, such as formula, or cessation of breastfeeding, repeating the viral load, and reassessing continuation or cessation of breastfeeding. If the repeat viral load is detectable, the panel advises immediate cessation of breastfeeding, and this guidance is more directive than the, the rest of the guidelines. And I think that one of the questions that's come up is, what do you mean by detectable? You know, if you have a viral load of 21, um, are you going to tell someone to stop breastfeeding? And I think that this is where clinical judgment comes in and what the trends are and all of that. Then, another area of controversy is there is no consensus on antiretroviral prophylaxis for infants of individuals with sustained viral suppression who are breastfed. Most of the panel members agree on only two weeks of infant cytovidine, and that's a change from previous four, which is a change from previous six. Um, several panel members said they felt more comfortable um, continuing for four to six if someone was breastfeeding. Alternatively, uh, some panel members recommend six weeks of nevirapine, as currently recommended by WHO. And then we have um, others who continue nevirapine dosing throughout breastfeeding, which is what, it, what our pediatricians in Houston are doing. So without data, we just have to tell you this is, these are some of the things people are doing. So um, there's a lot of new content on how to support breastfeeding and weaning, how to monitor the parents and their infants and manage specific situations, but a lot of this is based on expert opinion. There are a lot of gaps still in the data. As I've mentioned, uh, no studies have systematically evaluated the risk of HIV transmission through breastfeeding when maternal ART is started before pregnancy and continued um, throughout uh, or in, um, if, if it started in the first trimester. So, and um, no data exists to inform the appropriate frequency of viral load testing for the breastfeeding parent. So we still have um, a lot of studies that some of you might want to do. Um, 
And then, um, as was mentioned earlier, in another new statement is that engaging Child Protective Services or similar agency is not an appropriate response to the infant feeding choices of an individual with HIV. And numerous pregnant patients with HIV have reported that after expressing their interest uh, or intention to breastfeed, that their providers threatened to report them to Child Protective Services or did so. And those kind of actions can be very harmful to patients and their families and can exacerbate the stigma and discrimination experienced among people with HIV and are disproportionately applied to minoritized individuals, including black, indigenous, and other people of color. And I, we, we have an agreement that our um, patients sign that, and the OB and the pediatrician sign, um, just outlining about 12 major points about understanding that you need to take your medicine, you need to have uh, good viral suppression, and so on. And um, we had just started to use this document. It's not a legal document. Um, when a patient of mine called me and said, um, I went to WIC, and I mentioned I have HIV, I'm breastfeeding. And they said, oh, we'll have you talk to the lactation consultant. She talk, and she went to the lactation consultant. The lactation consultant said, you have HIV and you're breastfeeding? Um, I can't talk to you right now. And the next day, a child protective service worker was knocking on her door. And um, she pulled out her agreement. She said, but my doctors have signed it. And the child protective services person said, oh, um, I'll get back to you. And so she came in two days later and said, told me the story, and we called CPS, and we called uh, WIC, and we explained that guidelines are changing, and um, this was really okay. But this could have ended very differently, and her child could have been taken away from her. So the other thing that was new in the process of developing the guidelines was that we had much more community input and we integrated that. We had a representation from members of the Well Project, the International Community of Women Living with HIV North America, and, and others. We also got input from lactation specialists at CDC. We had a whole new level of collaboration uh, between the perinatal guidelines and the pediatric panel. And um, we, I, we divided the um, bulk of the rec recommending for the, pre the during pregnancy and pre-delivery counseling to the OBs and the prophylaxis issues and following the baby to the pediatricians, and that felt much cleaner. Um, we also reviewed each other's guidelines, and um, there were many edits <laughs> to many versions. Um, also, another big item is that CDC chose to refer any questions now about infant feeding to the perinatal guidelines rather than having their own. And um, as one community member pointed out to me, if there's, some, if there's a topic in healthcare you're not that sure about, where do you go? And if I'm not so sure, yeah, CDC is a likely place. And that's what was happening when it came to infant feeding. People were, a lot of people didn't know about the guidelines, so they'd go to CDC. And some of their guidelines hadn't changed since 1985. And so this is a huge step to now make the, recommend, the national recommendations much more uniform. 
And the change in the guidelines is coming at a time where we're seeing increased interest among providers across the country. Uh, some of you are familiar with the National uh, Clinician Consultation Center, which is a set of hotlines run out of UCSF. There's a perinatal hotline, and the, uh, this shows you the rising number of calls on breast and chest feeding that have been coming to the perinatal hotline over the years. And whereas um, when they first started to measure, it was less than 5% of the perinatal calls had to do with breastfeeding, and now it's over 25%. Um, there's also a wonderful study that was initiated by a group of pediatric residents at UCSF where they surveyed clinicians who have had some reason to uh, interface with mothers or babies and the issue of breastfeeding. And they identified the discomfort that so many of us have been living with and on the one hand wanting to respect uh, maternal autonomy, and yet on the other, feeling like not on my watch are you having a baby with get HIV while breastfeeding, and that that tension um, I think hadn't really been addressed in the same way before, and dealt it just got elicited uh, some of the emotional responses from clinicians about personal ethics, provider disagreement, and the lack of guidelines. And people saying, well, if there were guidelines, maybe I would consider it. Or in my group, you know, some of us are open, but others of my partners are not, and it depends which, which doc my, the patient comes to see. And so all of that has just created uh, just attention. And there's also, for patients, it's also, um, been a struggle to navigate infant feeding in the absence of more guidance. And um, these are some of the advocates whom we started to listen to. And um, as one CC Coven said, it's very important that we're given a choice. Like, I just need you to support what my decision is. It's not my provider's place to tell me what to do with my life or my babies. I just need you to leave the space open for discussion and choice. Um, and so just to, so that you know some, have these resources at your fingertips, one is the national guidelines. And if you go to the hivinfo.nah.gov, you come to all the adult guidelines, pediatric guidelines, and perinatal guidelines. And these are updated annually based on the newest evidence. And then I ask you all to take out your phones. And if you remember nothing from what I have said, Take down this phone number, and this is the perinatal hotline number. This is a 24-7, 360 days a year service to clinicians. And whether it's 3 in the morning and someone's been newly diagnosed with HIV, or there's the question of infant prophylaxis and the pediatricians aren't sure what to do, you get a real human being who's very knowledgeable to talk to to help you walk through your particular case and tailor it to your patient. Um, I think this is, it's just, um, I even, even though I work with the hotline, occasionally I've called and they're saying, Judy, why are you calling? It's because I just need someone to bounce my ideas off of. I know there's no single right answer, but just that discussion often generates ideas I hadn't thought of. So, um, and 
So if, no matter what your level of expertise, um, no one will ever make you feel stupid on this, on this. You can call with the simplest question and they are there for you. So um, conclusions, we've come a long way. We've listened to the people we, that we hope we are serving and working with, and we still have a lot to learn. I just want to acknowledge our one, our patients, the perinatal HIV panel, the pediatric HIV panel, the Centers for Disease Control, the Office of the AIDS Research Advisory Council, the Well Project. And if you're not familiar with the Well Project, it's, um, well, it's, it's worthwhile um, checking them out uh, online, and they really are advocates for women with HIV. And I also want to thank Deb Storm, who is our person who does the editing and of the guidelines who um, went through all of these many versions and um, was able to, she knows the, all the, the players on the different panels and was able to negotiate and be a diplomat and um, get us all together. Uh, Athena Cordes, who was our voice at the CDC, Leela Pollack, who um, is my co-author for the main infant feeding section. Ted Rule, who um, has provided um, a lot of great pediatric uh, insight. And Elaine Abrams, who has done the same. So thank you. I like things different. I like you sitting there. Okay. <laughs> what the hell? Thank you very much. Um, uh, really nice uh, and great to have you part of the family. Uh, can't wait to watch how your time with the organization grows. Um, I want to add my thanks to Elaine. Uh, Elaine Abrams uh, uh, was really uh, helpful in bouncing ideas back and forth uh, with uh, with the, uh, this concept. And, the, and the, the, the concepts, I think, are, are challenging. Many of us don't have a lot to do on a day-to-day -day basis with this question. I know a lot of you do manage women uh, that are HIV infected and for whom this, these are uh, important issues, but um, I think it was really helpful and I think the talk is a, a really nice summary of this. I was especially impressed uh, by the movement towards more um, involvement of input from uh, affected people, um, I think way too often uh, guidelines, maybe especially guidelines of, I'm not sure of the, the correct term to use, but people who haven't been given uh, a full voice in, in these decisions are now increasingly uh, at the table, and I think it's a, it's a really healthy move. Um, one of the questions that, that we have in a card uh, is for one of those uh, difficult uh, questions, what about uh, women who are HIV infected who refuse to be treated uh, during pregnancy. Is that something uh, where, you know, CPS or whatever other authorities might be involved are brought in? What's your, what's your reaction to, to that? You must see it at least occasionally. You know, pretty rarely. Yeah. Uh, um, I think, you know, I've certainly had people who've delayed starting and I think the most important is listening to them to find out why. 
And I, one answer that I've gotten about why haven't you started yet, we prescribed this a month ago, um, is, well, if I start taking medication, then it means I really have HIV. Uh, yeah. And it's that acknowledgement. And where we've, we've sometimes been able to get around that is saying, well, look, maybe you don't have it. But just for the sake of your baby, you're willing to take it just to, in case you do? And so try, for me, I think it's meeting people where they are rather than just coming down with, you have to do this. And so I, I can think of another one who really didn't want to, um, but once she, I think, felt some degree of respect for where she was coming from, was willing while she was pregnant, but she made it clear she was just going to use garlic after she delivered. And um, so, yeah. So um, obviously in these situations, there's a lot of concern about possible long-term uh, uh, toxicity side effects, um, and especially uh, concern that the baby might be adversely affected. Uh, thoughts on, on how do you respond to those issues? I, I mean, I know that this has been studied in a lot of big clinical trials, but do you want to talk I mean, more about yeah. that? Yeah, and, and I mean, there been different studies for different drugs, but the amount of um, antiretroviral in breast milk is very, very, very small. And we don't seem to have a problem with treating infants who, who do have HIV. So this is like really a minuscule amount and I, I don't think is a major issue. Well, this is kind of a nice takeoff from that comment because the question is, what about elite controllers? Uh, women who have non-detectable or barely detectable viral loads, presumably their risk of transmission is lower. Do they still need to be approached in this way? So elite controllers, we still recommend that they are treated throughout pregnancy. And I don't think I've had an elite controller who uh, wanted to breastfeed, but I would encourage her to, to continue uh, antiretrovirals while breastfeeding, even if she was going to stop later. Similar to the adult recommendations to treat elite controllers, even though we don't necessarily know that that's, uh, that that's mm -hmm. important. Um, talk about uh, uh, PEP post-exposure prophylaxis for women um, during, uh, during mm -hmm. pregnancy. Um, we, we might get to that in Hyman's talk later, but um, comment on that? Um, no problem with, with post-exposure prophylaxis, and we certainly, yeah, can think of a number of residents who've had needle sticks um, while pregnant and called in a panic, and, um, yeah. More commonly, uh, sexual uh, exposure during pregnancy, I would think. Um, you know, no, unless it was a sexual assault, probably, I mean, sexual assault, yes, they would consider. Um, not that many people who have come to that question. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Good. All right. Yeah. Uh, so here's a question on, um, and I've been ignoring the microphones, but if there are questions, and there's somebody. Okay. We used to we used to take away the microphones when we did the big New York courses, because New Yorkers talk too much. So we, <laughs> we said, oh, we're going to take here. I think the smaller audience kinder and gentler administration. <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. Okay, my question is about um, when you're counseling pregnant uh, can women. You, I, I can't hear you. Can't hear me? Okay. When you're counseling pregnant women who are virally suppressed, at this point, are you mentioning to them 
that breastfeeding could be an option or are you only having this discussion with women who are saying, I want to breastfeed? Oh, great question. No, and so um, and it's in the guidelines too. We recommend saying, um, what is your plan for infant feeding? What I used to say was, in the US we recommend formula, is that a, an issue for you? And then when the tears started streaming down women's faces, I realized I had something to learn about this. And so now we, and now with this change in the guidelines, we're just saying, we ask everybody, what are your thoughts on infant feeding? And I feel like everyone should be asked. People ask me, uh, Paul, you're retired now, what, what are you doing? And I, I'm, I'm actually helping raise my grandchildren. Um, and so these issues are important and I've learned how to make formula for those <laughs> kids that are and it's on not so easy. formula. No, you have to, sh it's, temperature is important. Yes, go ahead. Right. Um, thank you for a beautiful presentation. I think it points to a couple of things. One, really the importance of real life interdisciplinary care because when you're taking care of a family with HIV at the approaching the time of delivery, you really need the pediatrician, the ID provider, and the obstetric team on board. And you probably need the lactation consultant at your particular institution on board. Um, the that, other thing- But just in response to that, that is a really good point. And a number of my colleagues, I can think of one in Washington, D.C., um, one in Houston, um, a few other places are now forming teams mm -hmm. to discuss this. And we have a wonderful pediatrician who is a lactation specialist. And um, she. It, what we're now doing is, in addition to talking with your OB and the pediatric HIV specialist, um, women are going to have a consultation with the breastfeeding doctor and um, that is a new addition. Thank you. Um, the other point I wanted to make is that not all women, even though they're tested at the beginning of the pregnancy and the end of pregnancy, it's still possible to seroconvert while you're breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And really to make the case that while Obstetrics is pretty good at screening for actual HIV status. We're really bad at screening for HIV risk. Got it, and yeah. that women need to actively be screened for the need for PrEP and offered PrEP, including um, for the period that they're breastfeeding, if they're in a serum, if they have a positive PrEP. Right. And Thank you for that. We've had three women who came to us for the subsequent pregnancy, but who had become infected um, while breastfeeding um, a previous infant. And um, we approached American College of OBGYN to try to get them to add a question to standard history of, do you know your partner's HIV status? And um, unfortunately, they weren't willing to go there. But um, yes, I, and I wish we would ask that of everybody and if you and also emphasize if you don't know your partner's status get them tested um, the obstetrician should help the male right and it's some right and our healthcare system doesn't help this because you you know even if someone brings a partner into our our clinic but they don't they don't have insurance or medicaid or whatever you know we can't test them and it just that's complicated um there's something else I was going to say. Um, 
It'll come back to me. Right? It'll come back to me. <laughs> if it's important, it'll come back to you. That's right, right, right. Mother used to say. Um, recommendation for infant uh, HIV testing um, mm. after um, this whole process goes on. Uh, Thoughts about that? I know you're on the OB side, but the, I was going to say Elaine. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so that's also now in the guidelines. And I mean, there's the standard times during, um, you know, after delivery. But then I think uh, Elaine, tell me if it's like one month, three months, six months after cessation of breastfeeding. But it's it's in the guidelines. Check the guidelines. This is like a simultaneous translation. Uh, she says, hasn't been enough time. <laughs> I think currently there are not new recommendations for either frequency of monitoring maternal viral load during breastfeeding or for timing of infant diagnostic tests, but it is under discussion. And I think in practice, there is a lot of anxiety on both sides with intensified monitoring of maternal viral load as well as more frequent um, infant diagnostic testing as your insurance will allow. Great. So Thanks. stay tuned. I think we'll see changes in that in the next year or so. And the other thing did come back to me. Um, <laughs> and it's just that I think one other thing that clinicians don't think of is if somebody has been diagnosed with uh, an STI, so with gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, trichomonas, they have a sexually transmitted infection and they got it from someone and that that should be a trigger to discuss PrEP. And it's not yet a reflex among clinicians, but it's, you know, should trigger not, I mean, in pregnancy, we're testing, we test three times during pregnancy um, for HIV, not all states do, but it should be, if, even for non-pregnant, should just be a trigger, make sure you test for HIV and then discuss PrEP. Great. Thank you very much. Before you go to lunch, let me just add my personal thanks to Donna Jacobson. Uh, Donna has been kind of the, this organization from the start, and it'll be great to watch it evolve, so uh, thanks. And thanks for everyone for coming. Uh, there is a lunch break. Um, I think we're still on the original time. Are we on the original time? So come back whenever you were told to come back. At, at 1 o'clock. And I don't know if we're not providing lunch, right? Oh, we are. <laughs> Hopefully it's better than the coffee at coffee break. <laughs> Come back.